Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Weren't you surprised the first time that you read Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Faith, where the writer lists several figures from the Old Testament who had great faith. They were heroes. There are some of these heroes that we would consider heroes. Of course, righteous Abel, his blood still cries from the ground. He gave an offering to God that was good. Or you think of godly Enoch who walked with God and he was not for God took him. These are heroes and we expect to see them in Hebrews chapter 11. Then you move on and you find someone like Abraham. Still a hero. <laughs> But we have a little more detail on his life, so we start to get a bit unsettled why he'd be included in this chapter. It's true that he left his land on the basis of the promise of God. He left his home and then twice tried to give away his wife to save his life. You remember that? And then took someone who wasn't his wife to try to fulfill God's promises for him. But he also offered up Isaac in faith, so okay, maybe that counterbalances it. But then you get to Samson, and you say, how is he in this chapter? <laughs> As a hero, not just he did a good job, a hero of the faith, a man of faith. But you know from the story of Samson in the book of Judges, that whole book is a spiral downward, and Samson's at the bottom of the spiral. He was immoral. He was rash. If Samson was a member of our church, he would be under church discipline. Or he would be in prison. But you find him in Hebrews chapter 11. Why? Samson was confident in God. And he did something about it. It's very easy for you and me in a nice and calm environment when we have our quiet time or when we're doing our Bible study or even on a Sunday morning like this to say, certainly we trust in God, but try to say the same thing when there are thousands of fierce and hostile Philistines breathing murder staring into your eyes. Can you trust God then? Samson did. For all his other flaws... He was confident in God. That is the nature of faith. It is not just saying a prayer where I say I believe in God, but it is the nature of faith that it has a confidence in God where the rubber meets the road. It is not just confident in God in quiet times of prayer. It's confident in real life because that's where faith really counts, in real life, in the disillusioning circumstances that you had this past week. That's where faith counts. That's where you discover if you really do have a confidence in God and His revealed truth. And when you come to those circumstances that are difficult, this is why James says, count them all joy. I'm not there yet, <laughs> trying to get there. Count them all joy. Hard circumstances, why? Because that's when you, like Samson, have the opportunity to exercise a confidence in God. You simply don't know and really can't know if you are confident in God until you have to be confident in God. Until there's no alternative. Until it's make it or break it. And that's when you know if you have faith 
in the living God. Here we are and we say the true things about life after death, but you don't know if you have that confidence until death is staring you in the face like a Philistine. And then your faith is put to the test and the saints of old who are the heroes are the ones who faced those very circumstances, the same sort we face today, and by the help of God had a confidence in God, whatever their other flaws. A confidence in all of the truths of God. Faith, it's like a metal. It's only forged in an intense amount of heat. And it's true of yours as well. Do you have a confidence in God? We all know there are angels in this room. You really believe that? Are we making this up or is this real stuff? Faith takes hold of those facts, even if they're unseen. It is the conviction concerning things that are not seen, things that we find in the Word of God, that these things are true. And there is no way to live a confident life except to have this faith that is directed toward God. And that is precisely the sort of life God intends for you as a Christian to have. Not one with the doubting spirit kind of making your way along. We all deal with that at times, but that is not what God intends for you to be as a Christian. He intends for you to stand in the face of a thousand Philistines with nothing but courage. So let's see this in our text. John has been talking about love, but now he's going to make an application of that in how it relates to our confidence. So look at this in 1 John 3, beginning in verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Confidence before God. Do you have that? If Satan has been at all successful in his designs this week, you don't. <laughs> Because he is always going to and fro on the earth and especially among God's people, whether himself or some demon under him, working and laboring to remove from you any confidence before God that you may have. And the Christian's great task now and all your life is by faith to do battle against the devil who would cause you to doubt all that is true. Has God really said? That's what he's been saying from the beginning. And he comes and he is the accuser, he is the enemy, and he sows doubt and discord among you. And that is why, if you are to stand, it requires you to take up the shield of faith by which you extinguish his fiery darts, the arrows he fires your way. And if you don't take up that shield, then the darts just go right into your flesh. <laughs> And so today, it is a matter of us taking up the shield of faith, a confidence, not in ourselves, obviously, as we've talked about, not in ourselves, but a confidence in God and all that He has promised. 
that it is true. John has said before in writing his letter to the young men that you are strong and the word of God is in you and you've overcome the evil one. It's the only way. You have to be strong by God's word being in you. You believe it with confidence and you overcome the evil one. If we lived in a world where we were all immortal and we had an endless amount of time to do all that God's calling us to do individually and as a local church, then you could doubt and flop around from side to side and spend yourself wallowing in morbid introspection and uncertainty. But you understand the clock doesn't hit pause. Time doesn't stop when we're paralyzed by our own uncertainties and fears. People out there still perish. Every day they die without a knowledge of Christ. And people in here still have needs that are going unmet. It continues to happen. And so scripture calls upon us. If you are paralyzed by an over-exalted sense of your own inadequacy, as ironic as that may be, too much looking in upon yourself and seeing yourself as unworthy and incapable and you can't do it and you're a terrible Christian, maybe you're not even a Christian. We all deal with this, but when you get stuck in that rut, the needs continue, they just go unmet. And so this passage of scripture comes before you, stands against the schemes of the Philistines, stands against all that the devil intends in your life, says, no, get up. You have to have a confidence in God so that you are freed, as we're going to see in our passage today, to look away from yourself to all the needs in the world and to God himself. How do you do that? You do that by looking away from yourself. And that is going to be the first part of our message today. How can you have a confidence if you don't feel it? How do you get it? There are many ways, but our text today tells us this is one way. We have a confidence before God by looking away from ourselves. And then he is going to add on to that some of the joys or benefits or consequences of what will happen if you obey this text and look away from yourself to others and to God. So let's consider this text under those two headings. First, how you get this great confidence before God is by looking away from yourself. He says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Do you want that? <laughs> Do you want to know for a fact that you are of the truth? Do you want to reassure your heart before God this morning? If you've come in here with doubts about yourself, fears, concerns, worries, anxieties, you feel like the scum of all the earth, would you like to be able to breathe freely and to know that above you is a friendly sky, that God accepts you in the beloved? You want what that verse right there says? Because <laughs> it's saying you can have it. How can you have it? By this. Some of you may feel a bit like Sisyphus. In ancient Greek myth, he was the man who was doomed to pull, to push a heavy boulder up a hill, straining all his might. And when it got to the top, his curse was that it would roll back to the bottom and he had to return and push it up again forever and ever and ever. And some of you may feel that way when you're dealing with your own persistent doubts. 
your own fears and anxieties when it comes to your own unworthiness. And when we talk about a confidence before God today, you might feel like that is a wonderful message for a lot of people in this room, but not for me. <laughs> I've tried it. I've tried to have a confidence. I've had a good quiet time. I feel excited about the Lord. I feel secure in my position before Him. And then I go to work. I have one unpleasant experience with my coworker, and it's all gone. And I'm the worst Christian who ever lived. But he says, you can know that you're of the truth. And whenever your heart condemns you, does that happen? You can reassure your heart. That is your conscience in this case. You can reassure your heart before God. How? By this. You see that at the beginning of the text? That's the key, those two words. By this. And here we are desperately wanting to know by what? I want that. How do I do it? Well, I'm going to skip over some more intricate discussions of grammar that you could go into here. There is a question in this verse whether the by this is pointing backward to what was just said. He just said, let's love each other, not just by talk, but in deed and in truth. And by this we'll know we're of the truth. By this could also be referring forward to when he says God's greater than our heart and he knows everything. I'm not going to get into the intricacies of which one. I think personally that's referring backward, but in either case, this is in a long passage that is about our love for each other. And almost certainly, the by this, whether it points back or forward, is focused upon you living a life poured out actively in love for other believers. There are many ways to get an assurance of your faith, and we could talk a lot about it. The inward testimony of the Holy Spirit is the primary, but he works through means. We've looked at signs in John by which you can test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Be in good community, be in the Word, use the means of grace. But right here, John is picking out one way, among others, that you can be established in a confidence before God. And it's by this. By living your life in love for others, or in keeping with the title we're giving it, by looking away from yourself, first toward other people, in this case other believers, but really toward anyone. Now there are some of you who are in here who have wrestled a long time with a beast that we call a lack of assurance. You want to know Christ. You have a sensitive conscience. You're afraid of sinning against God. You want to live a good Christian life, but for whatever reason, you wrestle over and over and over with this thought. What if I'm not a believer? What if I'm tricking myself? This is called a lack of assurance. There are many things we could say about a lack of assurance. Sometimes this sense of, am I a believer, is because you're not actually a believer, in which case I say to you on the authority of Scripture, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But I'm not really talking to that group of people who don't actually know Christ. I'm talking to you who every person in your life would say, that's a believer. Is that a believer? Oh, that's a believer. Except you. <laughs> you're the only one. You're the one who's not sure, are you a believer? 
you do not have an assurance of your salvation. You are plagued with the fear that maybe you are tricking yourself. And you think, if only I could know for sure that when I die, I'm in Christ and I will enter paradise. Nothing else would even matter. If I could just know that for sure, if I could just have that assurance, how do you get it? John is offering you one way. There are others that are involved, but John is offering you one way. If you are here and here's your soul and you're looking in there trying to make sure, even as we go through 1 John, that you check off all of the evidences of salvation. Do you love others? Do you keep God's commandments? Do you hold to doctrinal truth? And you're investigating into the crevices and you're finding new places of darkness that you didn't know were there before and they're causing you concern and you're looking and you're looking and you say, once I find out all the evils of my heart, all my ulterior motivations kill them all, put them down, then I can know I'm a Christian. (laughs) That's not good news. That's some of the worst news I ever heard. So how are you going to deal with that? Today, I speak of paradox. You want an assurance if that's your position, you're paralyzed by this morbid, focused introspection? then what you need is not for me to come reason with you now and show you that, no, there really are signs of belief here. What you need is to just stop looking there. And look over there. (laughs) Don't look there. Look over there. See over there? Do you see a believer in need over there? While you're looking here, they're in need. And what will be most to your spiritual health is to look away from here over there and meet the need. You say, well, how do I know if I'm a believer? You know what? If you've spent a long time looking here, let's just act as if you were a believer and now go start living a believer's life. That is going to help you find an assurance much more than if you keep focusing here. I hope you see this in the text. By this we'll know we're of the truth. If, the verse before, we love each other in truth, meaning in fact, we really do. Like, in your life. You're giving and you're serving and you're meeting needs. If that characterizes your life, say, well, I can't go do that. I've got to make sure I'm a believer first. Go do that first. (laughs) And you may find this problem resolved. By this, we'll know we're of the truth and we will assure our heart before him. I am not saying that if you go live a life of love, you will make yourself a Christian. It doesn't happen that way, but I'm speaking to you and so is John. You who most likely already are a believer, but the devil has successfully gotten you trapped in yourself and you're looking and focused and analyzing out of fear. And John says, no, 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 by this you'll know, look away from yourself. It's like the worst Easter egg hunt of all time, you within your own heart looking for every Easter egg of evil you could ever find to try to repent of it all one by one and missing the entire point of Easter that there's a risen Savior. So just look away and that will help you to reassure your heart before him by this. There is a place for examining ourselves, Scripture says. But the idea of examining yourself, testing yourself, as Paul told the Corinthians, to see whether you're in the faith, the idea there is like a swimmer. You're swimming underwater and you come up for breath and you go back under and you swim. 
Coming up for breath is examining yourself. Most of the time, you're swimming. You got to come up for breath so that you can do more swimming. The swimming is you living a life of love, focused on others, enjoying God. And every once in a while, you've got to come up and go, okay, examine myself. Am I in the faith? Okay, back at it. But for some of us, we take that verse, test yourself to see if you're in the faith, and we make it a life verse, and we put it on our pillows and on our mugs and on our wall art. We say, this is what the Christian life is, always examining myself to see if I'm in the faith. And so that's the swimming, and you just come up from air to love somebody, and then you go back to it, examining myself. Is that what God intended the Christian life to be? No. By this, you can reassure your heart by just living a life dedicated to loving believers. It was the old writer of the 1800s, G.K. Chesterton, who famously had a chapter that he wrote about people who've lost their minds. But he was making a connection to our own experience. He said this, quote, Everyone who has had the misfortune to talk with people in the heart or on the edge of mental disorder knows that their most sinister quality is a horrible clarity of detail. A connecting of one thing with another in a map more elaborate than a maze. If you argue with a madman, it's extremely probable you'll get the worst of it, for in many ways his mind moves all the quicker for not being delayed by the things that go with good judgment. He's not hampered by a sense of humor or charity or by the certainties of experience. He's the more logical for losing certain sane affections. Indeed, the common phrase for insanity is in this respect a misleading one. The madman is not the man who's lost his reason. The madman is the man who's lost everything except his reason. And there is a sort of insanity that a Christian can be plunged into where you feel that you must analyze your own soul to gain that assurance, to know that you are of the faith. And you go in a very small circle around and around and around and around, and you try to address every objection, and you try to make absolutely certain that I am a Christian and I have every evidence of salvation. I've repented of every sin I've ever committed. And there is a great clarity of detail, and it's just that you've blocked out everything else in life. And so how do you help someone in this condition if this is where you find yourself or you're helping someone in this condition this morning? Here's Chesterton's advice. If you or I were dealing with a mind that was growing morbid, we should be chiefly concerned not so much to give it arguments as to give it air, to convince it there was something cleaner and cooler outside the suffocation of a single argument. I only quote that to show you that is what John is saying. If you want to know you're of the truth and to have your heart reassured before God, it's by this. Open the window and let some oxygen come in. And look out the window. Here you were obsessed within yourself. Look out the window. It's sunny. It's, wow, it's nice out there. People are living their lives. There's more happening in this world than just you and your concerns about your own soul at the moment. Look out the window. Realize that there are people in need. Do you see them? There are people perishing. There are other saints who need your services. Open the window and go out. By this. I make a point of this and maybe I belabor the point. Sorry, point. Maybe I belabor it. But part of the reason for this is we often think that if we're struggling with doubts 
And if we're struggling with uncertainties about our salvation or our standing before God, that the best way to handle that is get by yourself in a room all alone, no sunshine. Get in there, get your Bible, and read every verse about the evidences of salvation until you can analyze them perfectly next to your life and make sure they all match up and then you come out confident. But has that ever happened once in the history of the universe? <laughs> no, it has not. You know how people tend to gain an assurance of their salvation, especially if you really struggle with it? And this, my own experience testifies, and yours probably does too. It's when you're struggling to be assured, you're struggling with this sense of confidence before God, and you say, you know what? I don't know what to do about it. I'm just going to go out there and in a risky way, love other people. And you go and you do it, and a little bit later, when you've not even thought about it, all of a sudden you stop and realize, wait a minute, I feel like I'm a Christian. <laughs> Where have all my doubts gone? <laughs> By this, loving in truth, you'll know you're of the truth. Even if your heart condemns you, the way to handle it is to open a window and focus outward. Look out, away from yourself onto others. This is kind of like what Paul had said to the legalists in Galatians 5. I'll adapt it a little bit here. But he said, you were called to freedom, meaning freedom from legalism and keeping the law of Moses. But I say to you, if you're a Christian, you were called to freedom. You were not called to live a life like this. Oh, you were called to live a life like this. You were called to freedom, to bask in the warm sun of God's grace. Why were you called to this kind of freedom? Paul says, not so that you can indulge the flesh, but you are called to a life of freedom, knowing you're accepted in the beloved confidence before God, so that through love you may serve one another. That's why. Make that your life. And John says, the confidence typically is going to follow. Now, John also makes a point here that as you're looking away from yourself, don't just look away from yourself to other people, but you have to also be looking away to God. That's a key point as well. Notice this in verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Why does that matter here? I think that John is saying exactly the same thing that the Apostle Paul said, 1 Corinthians. He said, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, his critics, or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Wouldn't that be nice? How would your life change? Quite a lot. For I'm not aware of anything against myself. Said, but Paul, you're not perfect yet. He knows, he says, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. He's going to bring to light things now hidden. He knows everything in a way you don't even know about yourself. He'll bring to light the things that are hidden in darkness and he will disclose the motives, purposes of the heart and then each one will receive his commendation from God. 
Why point out that God is greater than your heart? How does that give you a confidence before God? He says it's because whenever your heart, your conscience condemns you, you have this experience. There are times when your conscience given by God will condemn you because you're doing something clearly wrong. In that case, you need to repent of the clear wrong thing you're doing and do it no longer. But you know from experience that there are also many times when your conscience, your heart in John, your conscience comes and condemns you in a vague, fuzzy sense. It's not specifically one thing you've done wrong, like you said a very wrong thing, repent of that. But it's just you say lots of wrong things. You're not a good Christian. You don't love people well enough. Why don't you care more about others? Why aren't you parenting your children better? This is your heart coming to condemn you with this fuzzy, vague sense. And what happens to your confidence before God? It shrinks, it contracts, and you lose it. What are you going to do when that happens? John says, this is what will give you confidence. As your heart's condemning you, and Satan is there stoking it, and it's condemning you and condemning you, then this is what you do. You have to do when these hounds of the devil come hounding you, reminding you of how worthless you are. When they're hounding you, you have to do the same thing the Apostle Paul did when he was hounded by his kinsmen, the Jews. He appealed to Caesar. You have to appeal to a higher court, a court higher even than yourself. God is greater than your heart. Your heart comes in with such a confidence like some very well-trained Harvard lawyer coming in and telling you, you're worthless. You'll never amount to anything as a Christian. I don't even know if you are a Christian. You say, why? Just because you are, because you're terrible. Look at them. They do great as Christians. You don't. Look at their kids. They're wonderful. Yours are terrible. And there, there you are shrinking. You have to, in that moment... If there's not a specific sin to repent of, in that moment, if you're to survive, you have to say, I appeal to Caesar. You have to say, I appeal my trial to a higher court even than my own heart. The only way to deal with this guilt is to look away from it, to say, I'm not listening to you, to look away from it up to God. That's what Paul did. He says, I don't even judge myself. God is my judge. He knows everything. Do you even really know all the motives of your own heart? No, you, we should deal with our heart idols. Come Sunday morning, 9 a.m., you'll learn about those. But we don't even know all the motives of our own heart. Why did you do that? Why did you say that? I don't fully know all the time. But God knows. It gets even worse when it comes to other people trying to discern why you did that and why you said that. They're even less likely to know. <laughs> And you have to appeal to a higher court. It's the only way. Otherwise, you will be stuck in just a vague sense that you're a terrible Christian. And you may think, well, if I got my act together and became a really great Christian, I wouldn't feel that way. I doubt it. I doubt it. I think you'd still feel that way. Because you'll never reach perfection in this life. So you are doomed to either never have any confidence before God or to appeal your case to God himself. Because when you appeal your case to God himself, he says, the verdict, innocent, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Perfect in my sight through the righteousness imputed to you from Jesus, my very beloved son. 
here's my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. Your heart did not say that to you. <laughs> it had many epithets to use against you, and beloved child was not one of them. But notice John in this text, beloved, beloved. Appeal to God himself. We have to get in the habit of doing this if we're to be useful at all in life. Otherwise, you simply paralyze yourself. There's so much about yourself you could feel guilty about this morning. A lot. How are you going to possibly move forward with a confidence so that you can serve others? You have to be able to leave the fuzzy sense of guilt with God and get on to the business of loving others. Leave it and love. You wake up tomorrow overwhelmed by just a general sense of guilt, leave it, appeal it to God's court, leave it there, quiet your heart, it's with God, and I'm just going to focus today upon loving others. We have to take the attitude of one of my heroes of the faith, the great hippie Christian of the 70s, Keith Green, just keep doing your best and pray that it's blessed and Jesus takes care of the rest. There does have to be some sense at the end of our examining of ourselves, where we simply say, you know what, devil, <laughs> you're right. I'm pretty bad. I'm a pretty lousy Christian, but Christ accepts me. God has accepted me in Christ, and therefore, I'm not listening to you anymore. I'm moving forward. There's too much work to be done. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater. He knows. Appeal to him. Just look away from yourself. That is the key thing. It was Martin Luther who said, don't argue with the devil. He has had 5,000 years of experience. He has tried out all his tricks on Adam, Abraham, and David, and he knows exactly the weak spots. <laughs> Don't try to reason your way to assurance and confidence. It's not going to work. Don't try to reason with the devil when he's accusing you. It's not going to work. Instead, you know what Luther said you need to do? You need to open a window. <laughs> You need to look away from yourself. Look away from yourself to others. Look away from yourself to God. Luther even counseled, if you can't get that far, look away from yourself to almost anything on God's green earth. He said, when you are crushed with a sense of guilt and depression, and there's no clarity of what to do about it. He said, go and talk to someone about what's happening in Venice. Go and sing a song. Go and listen to some music. He said, go marry somebody. <laughs> Just go get distracted from yourself and the sense of crushing. Do something that does not involve you sticking your head in the sand of yourself. That is absolutely the worst way to deal with a sense of guilt and paralysis as a Christian. Go out and do something. Go out and think about someone. Just make sure it's not you. And you will find an assurance that follows now, if you do look away from yourself to others and to God, then what can you expect the consequences will be? What are the joys that come from that? Well, briefly, let's touch on them in the rest of our text. Verse 21 gives us the first. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. The word for confidence is parousia, significant in the New Testament. And listen, some of you here by nature, before you knew Christ, were simply confident people. <laughs> you know who you are. You're always right. <laughs> it's amazing how right you are about everything. And you do have to taper that down and deal with that. But there's, that's fine. 
You're confident the way you see things, you're sure that's how they are. And hopefully you're teachable and others can correct you, but it's okay. If you are a confident type of personality by nature, that's wonderful. And the others of you here, you're not that way. Everything about yourself, you fear that it's a failure. You feel that you never do anything quite right. And if that confident person around here comes in and says anything, you immediately believe them. Because <laughs> I must be wrong and they must be right. And that maybe by nature is how you are. Well, it doesn't matter which of those you tend toward by your first birth, but your second birth into Christ is always to confidence. Not a confidence in yourself, but a confidence in Him. That's what He says if our heart doesn't condemn us. And that's certainly the goal. That's where He's trying to get you in this text, to a place where your heart doesn't condemn you. Then what do you get? Confidence before God. That's what John wants you to have. And it doesn't matter your personality. You can have that. This is not confidence in yourself. It's not a natural leaning toward confidence. There is a sort of arrogance that just believes its own opinion all the time. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking a confidence before God. A confidence in the things that God has said. And in this case, a confidence that if you've trusted in Christ, He loves you. He accepts you. You're in Him. You're innocent in His eyes. That kind of a confidence. Has Christ died for sinners? Has He died for sinners? Yes. Be confident. Yes. Yes, he has. No need to equivocate on that. Certainly. Are you a sinner? Well, yes, you definitely are a sinner. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, does his blood atone for all your sins? Yes, it does. For some of your sins, no. For all of your sins, absolutely yes. Is the blood of Jesus Christ the single hope you have going into eternity? And is it a ship that can carry you through the narrow sea of death itself into an eternal paradise of happiness? Absolutely yes it is. No doubt about it. When you come to your deathbed or if it comes suddenly upon you and you have to face that great goblin, you can look it in the eyes and you can say with a confidence, Poor death, like John Donne, the poet of old. Poor death. You think you're so scary, but you're just ushering me across into the celestial city, into my greatest happiness, into what I've longed for the most. Look, I know at night when you are alone and you've had a bad day and you are tired, your thoughts don't always drift in this confident direction. So let's reaffirm it right now in the daylight together in fellowship that this is what we believe. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes him the firstborn among many brethren or our faith is useless and you can throw it away. We believe this to be true. Confidence before God. In our day, and there are many reasons for this that we don't have time to go into according to that clock, but in our day, there is sometimes a sense that to doubt and to doubt God and the Bible is virtuous. It's not. There's no virtue in it. None. Zero. It's the opposite of virtue. To be honest about your doubts, that's virtuous. You don't have to be a hypocrite and pretend you have no doubts when you have them. Okay? But the doubting itself is sin. It dishonors God. It is not a good thing. I want to make sure that's clear in all of our minds. We will doubt and God is merciful to us. Sometimes we have to pray, I believe, help my unbelief, and God helps our unbelief. But the goal of the Christian life is right here, 
that your heart does not condemn you so that you may have a confidence before God. Not this confidence before God in everything that He has revealed. Imagine what your life would be if you had that. Wouldn't it be wonderful? And that's what John says you can have. It is the goal toward which you are aiming as a Christian. So that is one joy or benefit. If you obey this text to look away from yourself and find your assurance there, that you will find is a confidence before God. But he then concludes, and I conclude, with a second benefit that you will find. And it has to do with prayer. Because he did say our confidence is before God, and now he elaborates on that, verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. I hope you can all easily dismiss the odd notion that's somehow popular in our day that if you just believe hard enough, literally anything you ask for, Cadillac, jet plane, you can have it. That is nonsense. That is simply not true. Jesus didn't teach it. Some of his words taken out of context may seem to mean that. But Jesus and all the New Testament gives plenty of caveats. Every time you have a passage just like this one, whatever we ask, we receive. If you snipped off the end in the beginning and you simply took those words, your own sinful heart could do whatever it wants. You could get whatever you want. That's what happens in the prosperity gospel. That's nonsense. There are always caveats that are given with it. Because this is a precious promise we need to hold to. But it's not saying that if you just believe hard enough, ask for a million dollars, it'll be in your bank account Monday. Sorry, not true. Because notice the caveat even in this text. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. The main caveat for our confident prayers in the Bible is, if you pray anything according to his will. That is, if you are living a life where you are keeping his commandments, doing what pleases him. You're not living a selfish life where you think of God only on Sundays or twice a year, Christmas, Easter, and then you pray for whatever you want and try to get it. No, but you're living a life fully dedicated to God, confident in Him, focused on Christ, loving others, pouring yourself out to the last might, and then there's a need that's beyond what you can meet, and you pray to God, please help me to meet this brother's need. Please help this person with this health, health problem, please. And if it is according to God's good purposes and good will, then he will hear us and he will answer that prayer. Sometimes his answer is no or not right now, and that's according to his wisdom. But we should also take into account just how bluntly this is stated. If we ask anything, we receive it. Because confidence or faith does matter in prayer. You remember that James warned you if you lack wisdom, ask of God. He'll give it to you, but don't ask in a doubting way or you will not get it. So your confidence before God, your confidence in Him, your faith matters in prayer. It's not an automatic quarter in, gumball out. It's not automatic like that, but it matters when we pray that we're living a life confident before God. And if we're living that sort of life, one benefit of that is you will see more answered prayers. Brothers and sisters, I am not encouraging anyone here to
to a sinful bravado that detaches from reality and believes what it believes with no evidence whatsoever about anything out there, some conspiracy or something. That's not what we're talking about. But when it comes to the truths revealed in the Word of God, give no quarter. Not to the devil, not to the Philistine, not to your own heart, not to yourself, not to your neighbor, not to a hostile culture. These are the things we believe. We have nowhere else to go. We have nothing else. It's sink or swim. It's this or nothing. If we've believed in Christ in this life only and the resurrection's not true, we are of all people most to be pitied. We've thrown our lives away. You can't turn to the right or to the left or as the Puritans like to say, God gives you armor but none for your back. You can't turn around now. You're engaging the enemy. Where are you going to go? You can only go forward. So if you find yourself beset with doubts and fears and a lack of confidence before God, you have to deal with it. You can't stay there. The needs are great. The call is immense. Forward, onward. What are you going to do? You're going to look away from yourself. You're going to focus on others and live for them. You're going to keep your eyes on God himself and you are going to assert the truths of the Bible. Aren't you tired of living life in such a way where you apologize for being a Christian to everybody? I'm so sorry I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian but not like one of those. I'm so sorry. I don't want to bother you. I'm a Christian. I'm tired of that. <laughs> you know what? We're Christians. It's good, it's right to be a Christian, to follow Jesus Christ. It's wrong to reject Him. It's wrong to live in this culture in a godless way. It is right to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And everything He says in Scripture, I don't care what psychology or the current scientific fads say. I don't care what the culture is pressing. I don't care what you find on TikTok. This is the truth. This is reality, 100%. And may God grant to us as a fellowship and each of us individually 100% to doubt ourselves because we have nothing to offer God or any other but 100% and with the same levels of confidence to believe that we still serve a living God who is with us and who can do much greater things through us than any of us could ever imagine doing without Him. Let's pray. Lord, our objections to you this morning would run along the lines of Moses on Mount Horeb when you called him to a great work that required faith and labor and risk and possible death. Then he said, please send someone else. And although you were patient with him, eventually you were angry. Lord, help us not to provoke you in that way. Who made the tongue? Who makes a man able to speak or unable to speak? You. So you are calling us to a life in which we speak your truth with confidence to ourselves and to others. And we're not worthy of it. Our lives often don't match even the fervency of our preaching. And yet we can't lower our ideals to the level of what we are now, but just the reverse, Lord. Raise us up to match everything we find in Scripture. Life is very short. Needs are so urgent. I pray you'd help us to gain this confidence before you. For the sake of your great name.